Welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris. And I'm Jake. And we have a fun, adventure-filled episode for you guys today. I had the the pleasure of speaking with uh, James Barkman, who is a... He's awesome. I mean, he, 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 he's, <laughs> he's like, an adventurer, I yeah, think would be an accurate uh, descriptor. Yeah, it, it, I see, you know, I kind of read a little bit about him around the internet and stuff like that. And it mm-hmm. seems like he's uh, well known as a photographer, surfer, thrill seeker, and life enthusiast. And normally I would, I would go, <laughs> life Roll your enth- eyes at life enthusiast. But, after, but after talking with him, yeah. seeing what he's done, it's without a doubt. That's what I would classify him as. <laughs> no, no question about it. it. So he was he was born in like a small town in Pennsylvania called Bird in Hand. Uh, as wow. far as I can see, his father was a farmer. He uh, he basically left his apartment and bought a Type Two BW van, like a '76 van that he kind of lives out of. Um, shoots a lot of film photography. Mm-hmm. And but what interests me most is that he took off across the world on a late model '90s Suzuki DR650. Right. So which a little is a, dual sport bike. Very basic bike. Yeah. This is nothing like you see some of the guys that have, you know, big BMW bikes or KTMs or whatever. This is nothing like that. This is essentially a dirt bike. Yeah. It really it is. essentially is. He, he goes into it in detail in the yeah. uh, interview. But what's cool about it is this is basically what a lot of like the third world countries still use as like their police bike. Because they're bulletproof. Right. They really are. They're truly bulletproof. They were made for decades and... You know, pop, oh, yeah. Pop, Didn't pop. he say something like the design hasn't changed in 30 years yeah, up to it, the 90s? It's pretty cool. So he went from uh, Prudhoe Bay, Alaska down to Tierra del Fuego. So basically the tip, the, the northern Ar- tip, the, Ar- the Arctic Ocean to the Antarctic Ocean. Wow. If you want to look at it that way across two hemispheres right. in uh, 17 months. It took him to do this trip on. Uh, he also did a lot of like climbing and he stopped and did a lot of awesome mountain climbing. He talks yep. about that. He talks about some of the things that he did. It's really, really interesting. It's a it's a great conversation about adventure and what adventure means for the human condition, yep. which is, you know, it's a easy way of saying human psyche, human, you know, just your brain, your mind and what it does for you. And I think it's it's really it's a great episode. And um, everything he says really strikes a chord with me. Obviously, because I would sure. I would love to be able to do this. I want to do it in my car. I don't want to do it in a bike. I don't think I could handle it. I really well, don't. He talks I, about just like the frostbite. Like, no, you don't yeah, realize. Yeah, well, let's let, no, let's know, let but Mr. Like, Barkman tell the story. All right. Let's let Mr. Barkman okay, tell the story. I'm trying to just tease it, um, but, but yeah. What, what am I, it would be very difficult. He writes a little bit too, and one of the things I was reading through it, and one of his quotes is, a watched odometer never turns. And if you've ever been on a really long road trip and you kind of, you're driving for a while, you look at your odometer, <laughs> you're like, all right. I've gone seven miles and you look up and you drive a little while and you look down again. All right. I've gone eight miles. True. Okay. You know, so you never watch the odometer. You just kind of just, it's not what it's about. It's not about the distance traveled. It's about traveling itself. Yeah. And it's not experience. paying attention to the odometer. All right. Before it's we, not the destination. It's the journey. Yeah. It's cliche, but so absolutely yes. true. And we talk about that quite a bit. All right. Before we get into uh, some of the progress I made on my nine yeah. 11 and the interview with James Barkman, what have you got? Yeah, so we're super excited to announce a new sponsor, Worth USA. So Worth is a family-owned global For, company. Be, before before what? you get what? into that. What? When I walk into a shop, whether it's Flat 6 here in Minneapolis or it's SCI Performance here in Minneapolis or any other shop, what do you always notice? Yeah. Everything is the is the good stuff. Yeah, right? it's he, not like craftsman tools. Nobody's got a, 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 a toolbox from Harbor Freight. No <laughs> right. one's using sockets that are going to break. It's all like snap on. You know, it's Matco. It's it's all good stuff. And one of the names 
that you always see on the shelf, whether it's chemicals or tools or whatever it is, is worth. is worth. So it's one of the things that I would consider the good stuff. And I would always be like, oh, so I got this brake cleaner thing, right? This right. It's like a little pressurized brake cleaner thing. I got right. five gallons of, of brake cleaner and I've been milking it for years. Because you go to the <laughs> store, you buy the brake cleaner can and it's gone. You spray it for like 20 seconds and it's yeah. empty. This is like this little pressurized thing that right. you can use for your... And I, and I love that thing. And I'm just, whenever I use it, I'm like, yeah, this thing's legit. And I'm like, this thing is so, so legit. I Someone kinda, comes over to the garage. I'm like, hey, check this thing I out. I know. And you did that to me when I came over and worked on something. And I kind of scoffed at that. But since then, I've realized that cars are, in fact, dirty. And it's much, much easier when components are clean yeah. when you're working on them. Yeah, yeah. So I'm definitely going to get one of those parts. All right. Sprayers on as on well. to the official part. So, yes. <laughs> but regardless, Worth. Worth is a family owned global company that's been in operation since 1945. And as Chris alluded, they offer high quality, professional grade shop supplies and tools with the industry leading customer service. They have also just launched their world class hand tool line to the U.S. market. Worth is, of course, a German company. Right. So they're just releasing in the U.S. a German-made tools with lifetime warranty. Previously, the only German tools you could get are Hazit. You could, somehow you sure. could like yep. wrangle up some Hazit tools, but now it's cool to have another, yep. another brand. So be sure to head over to WorthUSA.com to check out all of their awesome products. Yeah, thanks for the support, guys. We really appreciate it. It's, it's the sponsors that keep the show going. So um, thanks to Worth. All right, so... I will need some more stuff on my 911 here in a minute in terms of undercoating and surface prep and everything else. Yeah, you've been really digging in. So I finally jacked my car up Mm -hmm. and started taking it apart. Mm -hmm. And why don't you tell me what you think you saw... When I took it apart, like how, what? what is your opinion of what you saw that I yeah, showed you? So you jacked it up, you removed the whole fender, you removed the fuel tank, and you basically ground off all the undercoating paint, etc., yeah. to get to the bare metal, which looked... It, so the previous owner of my car... Yeah, it was Stevie Wonder, guaranteed. <laughs> Stevie Wonder with a welder. <laughs> it is the ugliest welding. Like when you say, are you a welder or are you a grinder? This guy is neither one. Right. I, that he, was the joke I made. I was like, because you're like, well, I'm definitely going to do better than that. I said, well, or at least you know how to use a grinder yeah, it's, to make it's it bad. look some semblance of clean. It's really bad. There's MIG wires sticking out of it. It's yeah, like, that's there's my sh- favorite part. It's, it's really, really ugly. And the car, so the car was hit in the front, the front right. driver's front, side. Yeah, front left, front driver's side. And have you ever noticed on my car on that side that the fender was always bowed a little bit? Like, no, nev- I never did. I did. I'm sure Every you time did, I look but I'm sure car, no one else has ever noticed that. Probably not. Nobody's ever said anything to me. And but it it's it's like squished a little. Like if you look down the side of the car, it's like the, the fender pokes out a little bit. Like if mm. you were to just squeeze it, mm-hmm. and the middle would pop out. That's what it was. Because if you look, the way that they repaired it is the front of the wing where the fender bolts to. Sure was pushed down a little bit. So then you needed to push the fender down to be able to still bolt it on. Gotcha. And when you do that, it kind of pushed everything out and askew a little bit. Right. So basically, to think of it, it, these cars don't have frame rails, but that is essentially kind of the frame part of the unibody. Right. That whole section on the left was lower. Right. And of course, I uh, I have not bolted the jig up to find out if any of that is crooked yet. I've still got to do that. But I'm right to the point where I think probably this weekend... I'm going to remove all the suspension, mm-hmm. bolt the jig up and see what make sure all that stuff is in the right so place. So you did some haphazard measurements as best you could with a level and a tape. Yeah, measure. I found that the the left side of that frame, the right where the, the wing, sure. where the where the inner fender. It's the inner fender is yeah, what it's called. Okay. 
um, was down by about half an inch in the front, but only from about two feet forward from where Mm -hmm. the accident damage was. So someone tried to fix it and didn't do it right. So it goes right where it's supposed to go. And then it's right where the damage goes. It takes a dive and goes down. And you can see the weld. You can see it. You can see where they cut or mangled or whatever, whatever you want to call what they did. It looks like someone took a ketchup bottle and just squirted weld all over the place. (laughs) It's the worst. It's so bad. But here's the thing. These cars weren't worth anything in the 80s yeah this it was it was a 15 year old porsche right it was the 996 or not even no of its time it was a three thousand because you car. know what it was back then one of them imports it was Chris. one of them imports and it was an air cooled and it was weird yep. and it just wasn't special so somebody probably here's my thought about what would happen with something like this okay somebody's driving the car maybe it's the original owner drives the car gets into an accident this type of thing with that value of a car, it would have totaled the car. Mm. Guaranteed this thing was totaled. They turned it in. The body shop bought it, threw some parts at it, and maybe the body shop owner drove it or fixed it and drove it. I don't think it was a body shop guy at all. No? I think it was some guy underneath the shade tree in his backyard who borrowed his friend's welder to do that. Because no person who has ever welded professionally before would have done that work. Absolutely not. I don't weld professionally, and I would do a better job right. than that. Exactly. So I got to replace the, I have to replace the inner fender. Mm-hmm. I have to replace the longitudinal, which is where the gas tank bolts to on that side. Mm-hmm. So basically you have a uh, a front pan that holds the uh, the suspension. Like the, but also the on the floor of the front For the front end, and then you have the tank support, which is what the tank, that bolts to the top of the uh, front Fuel. pan. Yep. And then the tank goes on that, and then you have two longitudinals, one on each side. Mm-hmm. And that also carries a lot of the structure, and that's where the gas tank supports bolt to on the sides. Sure. So I have to replace all of that and the front latch panel, which is mangled on the side as well, so right where the hood goes. So I bought a bunch of those little Clico things. Which are those pins that whenever you see somebody with body work, there's all those pins. Yeah, what out is of that it. for? So basically what that is, is you drill a hole through through the metal mm-hmm. and then you can basically set all the metal in one spot. Right. And then you don't have okay. to weld anything together. These pins hold it together. And they also have little fingers that are like little clamps mm-hmm. that also you can it's little pliers spreads them open. You put them on there and you let them go and it holds stuff in place really, really well. That's that way, with an overlap weld, though. Well, this that, stuff should all be butt welded, shouldn't it? Not the, the lower pan is spot welded. Everything mm. on this car is spot welded together. Which, of course, is overlap. The only butt weld I'm going to have is where I cut the inner fender. Right. Everything else is going to be spot welded, which okay. these things basically it'll it'll allow me to put the car together, mm-hmm. put the fender on, put the hood on, make sure everything lines up and then I can weld it. Sure. O- otherwise, everything's going to be. Who knows where it'll look just crooked again, which would just devastate me. But I think I can do a better job than whoever did it before. So it's going to be an improvement. I don't have any experience with this type of stuff, but I'm going to try. I can't afford to pay somebody just a front pan paying somebody's like four thousand dollars. Wow. If I was going to have somebody do these repairs, it would probably be fifteen thousand dollars to have somebody just do all this. I'm not a bad welder, Chris. I'm not a bad welder either. So maybe you can come over and we we can have have a weld off. Uh, I can weld, I can make weld pretty well. I, I've Same. done, I've done some stuff on some other cars, just mm-hmm. some like panels and stuff like that, that I didn't mm-hmm. really care about. Um, I'd love to have your help. So come on over and, uh, prove me wrong and weld my car together. It'd be great. Okay. All right. So let's get on to Mr. James Barkman and my interview with him. I hope you enjoy it. We'll be right back. James Barkman is in studio to talk about his epic journeys and the kind of the philosophies uh, surrounding, which something I find really copacetic and uh, and I kind of have a an affinity with. So thanks for coming into the studio, man. I really appreciate that you're that you're here. Thanks for having me. Stoked to be here. As a kid, 
what was it that kind of manifested this desire to get out and explore for you? Was there, was there a moment that you remember that was like, wow, I need to do more of this? Or was it something that kind of evolved over time? No, I can definitely point back to the moment. And I'm sure there was maybe other definitive moments, but in my mind and in my memory, uh, I remember my mother reading to me um, The Endurance by Ernest Shackleton. And it was this, if you're aware of it, it's this crazy expedition to um, the, uh, the South Pole. And it was it was just insane. There's there's like uh, the ship got stuck in ice. They were stranded all winter long on an iceberg. And they had to eat their dogs. It's just this crazy expedition. How old were you at that time? I was probably like nine. Okay. And I was like, man, when I, when I get old, I'm going to do expeditions. I don't even care what it's, you know, I mean, there's so many different ways to go about that, whether it's like climbing or kind of like, I mean, there's just so many, whether it's the jungle, who cares? I was like, I want to do expeditions. And I feel right. like I always point back to that moment as when it started. <laughs> what were the early manifestations of it then? So a lot of people are like, oh, I want it. When I was nine, I was like, oh, I'm going to fly fighter planes, but obviously I'm not flying fighter planes. I'm doing a podcast. So what there had to have been some sort of continuity with having that moment that was like this inception of your mind of exploring and getting out. What was the early manifestation of it as a, as a young boy and a young man? The earliest experience I can remember was when I was 10 years old. My family did a road trip to the West in a motorhome, And I feel like it was a few weeks or something like that. We went to Colorado and we um, kind of hiked slash climbed Pikes Peak <laughs> and I was only 10 years old. So I had no idea what I was getting into. And granted, it's just a hike. So it's pretty mellow. But coming from pretty much sea level and growing up in Pennsylvania, having no concept of mountains or elevation and altitude, I got so shredded. I puked the whole way up. I, my dad even carried me, I mean, for a few, a few hours at least. And I just remember how miserable it was. But at the same time, like actually summiting was such a crazy euphoric experience. Even though I was so miserable, I couldn't eat. I was puking, couldn't drink. But I remember that being like, man, this is what it feels like. It's so miserable and it sucks, but it's so rewarding. And I, I just like want more of it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so you grew up in Pennsylvania. Um, mm -hmm. What kind of cars were around your life when you were first growing up? Um, my family, our family rig was like an old Dodge kind of conversion van with a Nintendo. And <laughs> that was kind of the type of rigs that families drove. That sounds drove. pretty rad, to be it honest. It was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, played Nintendo all the time. Um, and I think kind of just, you know, we had a station wagon. I don't, I don't even remember all the rigs. I think we went through a few rigs. But growing up as a teenager, it was very much kind of in the Euro car scene. I grew up, you know, pretty close to H2O and those kind of car shows, Vag Fair. And there was just a lot of a lot of Volkswagens, a lot of BMWs, a lot of those kind of rigs and a lot of friends that were just in the car scene. And while I was psyched on cars and, and just rigs in general, I wasn't as deep as some of my buddies, but that was definitely like a huge influence to me was just kind of being in that culture and like surrounded by it. And what were you driving back then? What was your rig of choice? My first rig I ever bought was an 84 Rabbit. Okay. <laughs> so it was a barn find. Just kind of bought it cold, no title. How did you find the car? What was the 
I think it was a Craigslist ad, if okay. I remember. Either a Craigslist ad, ad or somebody kind of sent it to me. I feel like it all kind of blurs now. But you know, when you're when you have friends that are into cars, they kind of shoot you yeah, stuff. Yeah. But, so how uh, bad was it? Was it something where there's pigeon shit all over the car and the thing smells like holy hell on the inside and you're like scrubbing it down? Or was it a pretty <laughs> decent barn find? It was fresh to death, man. And it, <laughs> it just kind of got me hook, line and sinker. I should have never spent as much money as I did, especially not having a title for it. But it was so worth it. And that was that was the first rig. Um, so I kind of finally got a title for it, got it running. And I also drove a um, E34 around for a while. So that I didn't own. It was kind of a handy... Uh, hand me down from my dad, but between the Mark One and I had a few other Mark Ones after that, and then um, the BMW that was kind of my first, ex- my first rigs that I actually drove. So eventually, you worked your way up to having a Volkswagen bus. What was the? How did you end up with a bus? How did the? What was the choice like? Was this like a lifestyle choice, or what was going on with this bus? Uh, it all kind of started from the Mark Ones, man. I feel like so many people that have buses or or Beetles or whatever, they, it's like the natural progression. I feel like to go from Mark Ones to buses and just kind of go more pure, as I like to think of it, like go more air cold. Uh, so I had Mark Ones, and I was like, man, I, I want a bus so bad. I didn't really know much about them, but I remember driving by this old rusty ass bus on the side of the road that was for sale, and I I was 12 years old, and I was like, man, I'm gonna get a bus and buy it with a few buddies and drive to California and back at 12. I was like, that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> and I think that's kind of when it first started. Cause I didn't know anyone that had a bus, like no one, it just wasn't a thing in that part of Pennsylvania. Um, and it's kind of at that point, like I would, my family would have viewed anybody with something like that as just like a grungy hippie. Like that was very much a part of the, uh, the, uh, culture. But I saw the bus. I was like, man, I'm going to get one with some buddies when I'm old, when I get older. And uh, that's kind of what I finally did. So I just want to kind of go back to this point where these things that you're thinking you want to do as a young kid, you ended up doing. Why do you think so many people don't end up doing what they wanted to do when they were a kid? What do you what's the what's the disconnect between uh, the dreams that you have when you're young, when you're when you're a kid or a teenager or a young adult? Why does all that stuff disappear and why didn't it disappear for you? And I mean, that's a good question. I feel like there's so many things that I want to do and still want to do. And, you know, there's just not enough time in the day to do everything. (laughs) And I feel like I've kind of always had that perspective of life, like, man, it happens so fast. And if we don't make a decision right now, all of a sudden we're going to wake up and be in our 40s or 50s or 30s, whatever. And and there will be no more time left. And I feel like from a teenager, I was like, man, I got to do this now if I'm going to do it. And I don't want to waste a day. And um, I think kind of like this whole idea of risk and and uh, not being afraid to kind of jump out and take a leap of faith for your dreams, even if you fail trying, was always so important to me. And I have made a lot of mistakes and done things I you know, w- regret, but it's all part of... I guess my value system of like doing the dreams that I have, whether it's a, it's like a hard lesson or not, and just kind of going for it while there's time. So I had a conversation with uh, an editor of one of the magazines that I, that I work for. And he kind of challenged me a little bit. He said, what are you doing? You know, what are you doing? What do you want to do? And I'm 38. So I'm quite a bit older than you are, I imagine. And 
I just said, I, I don't, I don't know. I'm not sure. And I, and I started, he's like, well, if there's some of these things you want to do, some of these trips you want to do, he's like, you need to do them because mm-hmm. you're not getting any younger. He's like, you know, I want to go to the Arctic circle. I want to go to Ushuaia, Tierra del Fuego. I want to go, I want to go to Asia. I want to drive in Japan. I want to drive here. I want to drive there. I want to explore. I want to go to Norway. Like, all these things that I want to do. Yeah. I need, I need to do them because at some point you're not able to do them anymore. And I had a, and I had a conversation with my grandfather who's 88 now. And I did this kind of this interview with him of, of his life where he's been all these things, you know, just kind of family documentary stuff. And I said, what is your biggest regret? Like, what do you regret most in your life? Which, you know, it's, it's a tough question to ask anybody that's, you know, towards the, la- the latter part of their life. Cause yeah. knowing at that point you can't change it anymore. Sure. It's gone. It, it's, it's, your life isn't over, but your opportunities to change things are over. Sure. And he says, I wish I would have taken more risk. Oof. That was a, he says, I wish I would have taken more risk. I wish I would have done more. I could have done more. Wow. And this was the conversation that I was kind of having with all this car stuff that I'm doing. You know, I don't, you know, I don't make a ton of money, but I'm still really passionate about it. And I was thinking about whether it was fair to myself or fair to my family that I continue to try and push the envelope on my dreams like this. Mm-hmm. And I, and I was thinking about quitting and he said, don't, don't you dare quit. Don't you dare, Man. don't you dare quit. And it was, and it was this, this was a couple of years ago, kind of around the time that I started the podcast that, huh. that, that this happened. And you know, that, as you say, I, most people don't, follow their dreams until it's too late. So I think it's an important message to make sure that people get out there and, and it's, it's a cliche, right? Like, like follow your dreams, yes. like YOLO, right? But, <laughs> but this stuff is like really important. And there's, there's truth to, to all these core values um, of getting out and exploring. And in my case, like I always say, take the car. Um, so one of the journeys of yours that I want to focus on most is your, your trip, which is, you know, on my bucket list of trips to do, which is, uh, Alaska to Tierra del Fuego in Ushuaia, which is the bottom of Argentina, Mm -hmm. basically. Why, first of all, why did you choose this trip? How did this concept of even doing this come about? Um, the idea started probably, I mean, five years ago. Um, definitely it's, it's kind of, it was in the background for a while. So I grew up with these two friends of mine, grew up in the same area. Our families knew each other forever. Basically some of my oldest friends and my one friend, Alan was like, man, the day I graduate school, I'm going to drive from Alaska to Argentina, ride from Alaska to Argentina on a bike. And he's like, you guys can come with me or not. (laughs) (laughs) So I definitely kind of have to credit the idea to him. Sure. And, um, as the trip kind of started evolving and progressing, it became like a climbing trip as well as a riding trip. So it was very much like a mountaineering, um, expedition as much as it was like a, a motorcycle trip. Um, but that's the idea started with Alan and we're like, man, this is, He's like, this is the hardest thing I can think of, like the most challenging experience. Therefore, I want to do it. And we were kind of all like, yeah, of course, we're going to do it with you, man. <laughs> did you did you anticipate some of the suffering that you would go through? I knew it was going to be hard. I didn't know how hard. I definitely think that that is the most I want to suffer in this lifetime. <laughs> it was that, was that trip. That that's makes- 17 months on the road. That's as gnarly as it's going to get, I hope. So tell me about the bike that you ended up getting. So we all rode DR650s, late 90s. What's a DR650? I don't know what that is. DR650s is a Suzuki Dual Sport, uh, 650ccs, obviously. And they are exactly the same from 96 to current year. 
So that is that just makes parts maintenance, I mean, 100% easier. And actually in Latin America, a lot of the cops are still riding DR650s because they're the same from 1996 to current year. So uh, not only are they bomb-proof bomb and reliable, they're air-cold. Um, they, there's just, I, I think a lot of like the DR people would just say there's so much potential in a DR and as like a bone stock bike, it's kind of maybe not that impressive, but you can kind of unlock it more or less once you start hacking into it with, you know, exhaust, carb, airbox, all that. So we were all pretty bare bones, but we had DRs because, um, parts are so accessible and riding the same bikes, we could you know, problem solve and diagnose stuff a lot easier because we just switch parts. Mm -hmm. So that just made things so mellow. And so what kind uh, of, do you bring extra parts with you? What was the prep process like for getting ready to go? We did, uh, we tried to prepare as best we could. <laughs> and then when you're actually on the road, I think as you of all people would know this, you kind of find out pretty quick what you need and what you don't need and what you wish you had. <laughs> yeah, it's usually the duct tape I forget. <laughs> Yeah, so we definitely had some um, some pretty gnarly moments. We were stranded for a few days, but I think about halfway, maybe maybe a third of the way through the trip, we were completely dialed with our toolkit, with our parts. Um, so a third of the way through the kit, are we talking like Baja, California area? We're talking like Southern California. Yeah. And, and that's kind of when we hammered it as hard as we could. We're like, man, we're about to get into Latin America, out of the land of Amazon Prime. Now's the time to get <laughs> things dialed. So um, it definitely took a while, but um, yeah, I mean, we had very minimal spare parts, but I think just kind of like drivetrain stuff and, and, you know, ignition components, pretty basic stuff. And like, again, just to speak to the reliability of DRs, they are so bomb proof and bulletproof. I mean, my buddy Alan snapped his frame and just welded it together and kept going. It's like, you can't kill them. It's amazing. So where do you, uh, once you cross into Mexico, things change quite a bit in terms of what you're able to do, where you're able to go. How do you decide how to keep yourself safe in some of these environments? Like Central America is pretty sketchy. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it was definitely a mixture of maybe being a little naive <laughs> and also trying to uh, research as much as possible. At the time that we crossed into Mexico, there was a number of states that were level four travel advisory. What does that um, mean? And that's essentially the highest level travel advisory that the U.S. government issues. So right now, Afghanistan. So if you're white, don't go there, basically. If you are a member <laughs> of the U.S. government, it is illegal to go there. It would be okay. espionage. So no it's, kidding. It's, okay. it's gnarly. So like Syria, Afghanistan, they're all level four right now. And a lot of Mexican states were level four. And you could feel it as soon as you got into those states. It was insane. No one's on the streets. No one's riding around. Everyone's behind bars. What are the border crossings like going into somewhere like that? Are they like, are you sure? What are you doing? A couple times, uh, the cops were like, you guys know where you are? The one guy told us we're going to get killed, actually. He's like, drive and don't stop. You're going to get killed. <laughs> and that was so a very from... Did you believe? Why did you keep going at that point? Um, I think that... You know, we kind of, like I said, it's like we tried to do research as best we could. And when we were in an area that was maybe unsafe, we just ride through it as fast as we could and not stop, you know, obviously not spend the night anywhere. You, you kind of have to be at camp or be at a hotel before uh, night falls. 
And then also we're kind of burly looking dudes for the most part. We didn't, we weren't like rich guys on $30,000 GSs. We just had $1,500 DRs and, you know, big beards. And like my buddy was always wore a machete. I wore a big knife. Like I had a bow and arrow on the back. (laughs) (laughs) And I think maybe that just would kind of deter people from being like, oh yeah, look at these like bougie rich tourist bikers you know right we're just a bunch of scrappy kids on bikes you know with nothing they're not they're not going to take anything from you what do you have that they right. could even that they could have so what are some of the the uh, unforeseen hardships you know that you ran into um definitely besides like the physical just brutal well tell me a little bit about that what was the unexpected physical toll on your bodies um i mean anyone besides that rides- not being able to walk <laughs> <laughs> Anyone that rides a bike in cold weather understands how cold it gets. I mean, the wind chill factor is just unbelievable. I mean, if you're riding in 32 degree weather at 60 miles an hour, that's pretty gnarly. We it's, get up here with snowmobiling. We get it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we get for it. sure. And, uh, and like just kind of sitting on a bike and not really moving. Like when you're, say when you're climbing, like mountaineering, yeah, it's cold, but you're moving, right? Your core temp is up. But when you're sitting on a bike, you're hanging onto the bar. So your fingers get cold. You're not moving. Your core temp is just kind of dropping. And it is so cold. I got frostbite a number of times just riding, you know, and, and that is, that is such an insane physical and mental toll because when you kind of feel like you reach your limit, you're like, I actually can't go anymore. I'd be like crying from the pain, you know, because I couldn't feel my feet, couldn't feel my hands. I literally am getting frostbite. But you have nowhere to go. You just have to. But you're in it. You have a couple more days of riding before you're out of it, you know, and that is just like such a crazy thing to be in that. You're like, I can't get out of this, you know. So how is that contrast? You know, we talk a lot about a lot about contrast on this podcast of that suffering changed your outlook on life, knowing how bad things can really be. Has, has there ever been a point, I guess, since then where you're like, well, it's not as bad as that. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> pretty much. I think all of us, uh, three dudes, we always joke about like, man, we can do anything now because nothing's going to be as hard or m- as miserable as that trip. And specifically when we rode up to dead horse in the Arctic circle, that was probably the coldest that we ever got on the trip. And we always reference that like, man, that was the hardest thing we've ever done. We can do anything. Like nothing's going to be that hard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So what are some of the, the mechanical stuff that happened on the bikes? that that you struggled with um kind of surprisingly i'd never had any type of major issues the entire thirty-eight thousand miles is insane just change the oil change the oil you know change the chain every now and then sprockets would roast pretty quick but i mean every were you able to find some of this stuff in south america yeah um pretty it it was kind of ironic actually by the time like we would burn through our spare like we'd always kind of have a spare chain spare you know set of sprockets all that by the time we'd burn through our spare we'd kind of be in a major city and could kind of get another another um you know fresh setup and a spare so it kind of worked out and we did as much research as we could um and kind of like you can i mean you can definitely do it i mean if you if you do your research you can be at a major city and there's always stuff that's accessible but as far as like mechanical stuff goes I never really had that much of an issue. I just got lucky. But uh, Alan ended up rebuilding his motor three times in Patagonia. (laughs) One night we rebuilt it in an Airbnb, like rolled it inside, (laughs) ripped it down to the case. And it was insane. And then our buddy Jeremy had a lot of electrical problems and it was a nightmare. But I I got lucky. You got got the lucky straw of the bunch. So, I mean, was there a lot of tire issues, a lot of blown tires and a lot of just shredding tires to pieces? So many tires, man. And... Whenever a tire goes, it's just when you are over it, 
every <laughs> single time. It's the last thing you want to do. You know, your tensions are tight. You've maybe had a hard day of riding and like maybe you're arguing or something and then your tire goes and it's just, it is the worst. But we, I think we had about maybe 40 flat tires um, between all of us over a year and a half, which is a lot. And I think if I did it over again, we would get, um, we were maybe like, kind of because we are dirt bags and trying to be as cheap as possible. Like we wouldn't get heavy duty tubes and stuff like that. So <laughs> there's a lot of things I do differently if I did it again, but uh, because we're trying to be so cheap, I think we paid for it often, but we had a lot of flats and it was awful. So when I kind of looked at this trip and doing, it, I feel like it would take me three to four months. You know, I think you could do it in three to four months comfortably mm -hmm. and enjoy it. Why is 17 months? What was the, why so long? So the reason we took that amount of time is because it was a climbing trip. We started off by climbing Mount Denali in Alaska. We left from Pennsylvania, ripped straight to, you know, Talkeetna, Alaska, got on our plane flight, barely made it in time. My buddy actually, uh, his CDI unit went right after we crossed into Alaska and we had to be at Denali the next day. So he ended up getting towed by some random pickup truck, 450 miles, got on our plane flight, got on Denali after... I think it was 4,500 miles of cold, hard riding, 500 miles a day for and nine days. And he got to sit in a truck. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it sucks. Um, but it, it was a climbing trip. So we were kind of moving with the weather windows and with the season. So we would we climbed in the, little, in the Alaska range uh, like early spring. And then by the time we got down to like southern BC, the, it was like the tail end of that climbing season. And then by the time we got to the East Sierras and kind of like California, it was like prime season. And then um, by the time we got to Mexico, it was like the right season for that. So everything was built around climbing and, and being in these mountain ranges or being on these objectives that we wanted to climb in the proper season. So did you run into any issues when you were doing any of the climbing stuff as well? Uh, as far as like, like issues on Just the mountains? challenges, themselves? dangers, any, you know? Oh, for sure. <laughs> um, on Denali, we there's definitely some pretty tough moments, and that was kind of like the first mountain that we hit. So it's kind of definitely kind of like, man, is this what it's going to be like the rest of the trip? <laughs> but uh, we got stuck in a storm for seven days up at 14,000 feet on Denali. It was negative 40 every single day. Every couple hours, we'd have to shovel our tent out because the snow would literally be bearing our tent, and we'd like wake up and could hardly breathe because the snow would be covering us. So that was really miserable. How do you um, deal with the boredom? I mean, being stuck there for that long with a storm. I mean, what are you doing during that time? You reading the same book <laughs> over and over again or what? Oh man, you run out of books. I mean, it's, it sucks. You kind of, I don't, I don't know how to answer that question. It just sucks. It's, it's a pretty like, yeah, like you can kind of occupy, you know, your mind with card games and whatnot. But at the end of the day, there's so much stress about like, are we going to get a weather window? Are we going to be able to climb this? Did we spend all this money and train all these months for nothing just to sit here and turn back because, you know, the weather's not clearing up. So that's kind of like, no matter what you do, that's always in the back of your mind. And it just kind of takes a toll for sure. <laughs> so when you're sitting in your tent and you're just waiting for something like that, or you're on your bike and you're just, you know, you've got like four hours to go. What are, what are you thinking about? What do you spend that time doing in your own mind? On the mountain, we usually just dream of pizza, man. <laughs> That's kind of what keeps us sane. It's so funny. We'd all wake up and be like, oh, man. Like, it, you know, we'd be stuck in a storm or you're, you're up at high camp or something. You're like, man, I just dreamed of like this huge buffet. And my buddy would be like, oh, yeah, man, I just dreamed of this like huge pizza. <laughs> uh, so that kind of keeps you sane. On a bike, man, it's just we're just like dreaming of a warm bed. Like, and, and what sucks is often, you know, we, we actually never 
um, got a hotel until we were in Colombia. So we camped every single night um, because we, we were just trying to go as hard and long as we could. So sometimes you're just like, you're riding, you're cold, and then you, yeah, you want to just go in like a warm bed or hotel room, but we didn't have money for that. So we just like camp and sometimes it'd be raining, it'd be snowy. So that's, <laughs> right. I don't know, you kind of just try to trick your mind into into like convincing yourself you're going to be comfortable in a little bit. But I don't know, it's it's gnarly. I guess I don't really have the answers. <laughs> so speaking of Colombia, so to get to Colombia, you have to go through the, the Darien Gap, which is this really dangerous uh, drug dealer ridden area and you chose to take the ferry. Um, how come you didn't just give it a go? You know, on a bike, it's a little easier than a car. Why did you choose not to go through there? Uh, there's definitely been a few expeditions through there and it's, it's hard. I mean, if we were to do that, we would have needed a lot more resources. I mean, I feel like that in itself is an insane expedition. Like I, I don't think, I mean, I don't even think that would be possible. It's basically for, a swamp, right? More or less. It's basically a swamp and you'll end up kind of getting like ferried on like dugout canoes and then, you know, dragged up hills with like teams of porters. It's insane. And aside from just, you know, the, the physical challenges, there's FARC rebels, there's like drug, you know, cartel stuff. I mean, it's just insane. I, I have no desire to. <laughs> <laughs> That's we, saying a lot. I think. <laughs> we didn't actually take the ferry. They used to run a ferry, but now um, they... They either do like sailboats or um, you ship your bike on a shipping container, which is what we did. And then we just caught a plane flight and uh, met up with our bikes, which took two weeks. Every day they're like, oh, yeah, they're coming tomorrow. They're coming tomorrow. And they were just kind of lost at sea for two weeks. We're like, did they get stolen? Like, are they coming? So thankfully they showed up. Two weeks? Two weeks. To go like not very far? Two weeks to go like 60 miles. Wow. That's incredible. Unbelievable. Just out there doing circles in the middle (laughs) of the Gulf of Mexico. (laughs) Who knows, man? There's some shady stuff that goes down there. So speaking of shady stuff, when you think of Colombia, you think of, you know, you think of cocaine and and, and poverty and, and crime and everything like that. But it's not always like that. There's a lot of good people there too. What are some of the people like in Central and South America that you got to deal with? Yeah, man, it's, it is, um, the people there are amazing and it's, it is crazy because the poverty does lead to crime and leads to violence. But as I feel like, you know, kind of the people, there's people that react in different ways. They react and they become, you know, maybe like violent or, or, or like lead to crime, or they just become even more genuine and hospitable. And I think some of the most genuine and hospitable people we met were in Latin America, you know, like people that are going to kill their last chicken and feed you. It's, it's amazing. And, uh, yeah, we were kind of blown away the whole time, like being in these areas where these people had absolutely nothing and they, and they, you know, they did anything they could to make you feel welcome or to feed you. And it was incredible. So tell us a little bit about your climbing experience in Peru. Yeah. So, uh, Peru was definitely kind of, the uh the holy grail as far as climbing goes of the Why whole trip the cordillera blanca and and the mountain ranges in peru are in my opinion the most dramatic in all of latin america there's the patagonia mountains which are beautiful and dramatic but they're not as high as the mountains in peru so essentially peru has just an, an unlimited amount of 6000 meter 20000 foot mountains just so dramatic and beautiful and crazy glaciers. It's, it is like indescribable. And that's kind of where we, um, we wanted, we had like some of our bigger objectives, you know, we knew they were there and we kind of spent as much time as we could trying to climb as much as we could. 
Um, so it was actually unfortunate as we got to Peru and kind of to this mountain range, we were racing down from Mexico to get there at the beginning of climbing season. And uh, my buddy, Alan, he's, his knee started swelling up and it just got crazier and crazier. The last 1500 miles, he would literally be riding with his leg stretched out because he couldn't bend it. It was, his knee was like twice the size. So we got to Peru. Um, he ended up just flying back to the States because none of the hospitals knew what was happening. He flew back to the States to get it checked out because it was getting worse and worse, like he couldn't sleep and it ended up being a Lyme disease. So oh. he was back in the States for two months while Jeremy and I just kind of climbed as much as we could in the meantime. How disappointing for him. It was it was a huge bummer. and But at the same time, I think he was just relieved that um, he could actually kind of get over the Lyme because at that point, often, you know, if you don't catch it in time, you can deal with that for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. So it's like, yeah, the trip is at stake, but his whole life was at stake. And, sure. and fortunately, he managed to kind of to kind of beat it and get over it. So that that was definitely like a, a huge, uh, I guess, a huge encouragement for him. But um, yeah, we climbed a lot of 20,000 foot mountains and it was insane. It was it was a really dangerous year because the weather down there is getting crazier and more unpredictable year by year. So climbing information that applied, you know, the year before or, or two years before doesn't even apply anymore because things are melting so fast and changing and shifting. So it was really dangerous. Uh, a lot of people actually died um, around us. It was kind of crazy, like kind of coming back from a climb to, to the city. And we were staying in an Airbnb for a couple months just as a base camp and like finding out that like these guys died. And what does like, that do to your mental, you know, well-being it definitely makes you think you're like man are is this worth it like obviously we're not trying to be reckless and we're we're trying to be calculated because we want to climb and you, we, we want to climb for the rest of our lives none of us have a death wish but um there's the, do you think some people do i don't think any i don't think climbers have a death wish no i think um i think climbers are actually a lot more calculated than people think and there's so much objective hazard on mountains that you can't control. And it's, it's not that like climbers are pushing themselves past, you know, the past their own skill level. It's often that something happens that they can't control, whether it's like an avalanche or a rockfall or icefall. Um, but I think some people's threshold of safety and risk and what they're willing to, that line, you know, that they're willing to walk is different than my own for sure. And I think everyone kind of has to figure that out for themselves. But um, yeah, all that to say that it we were able to climb a lot of stuff in Peru. But you dealt with an avalanche too, right? Yeah, we did. So uh, one of the mountains, we uh, were kind of like waiting for the weather to clear and up. And where is this? This what? is in Peru as okay. well. So this is a 6,000 meter mountain. I think it's like 6,400 and some change. Um, but it hadn't been climbed that season. And we had climbed a 6,000 meter mountain. So nobody had climbed this one yet this season. No one was That's able to That's how remote this is, right? Pretty remote. And we had done one a few weeks before we were the first team to get up on it. Nobody could punch through, but we were able to get it. And we were kind of just maybe feeling a little overconfident. Um, and I mean, it was definitely like, it was a lot of work, but um, we were able to get it. So we're like, oh, let's go for this one as well. So the weather cleared up and we went for it. It was like a three day weather window. We ended up getting stuck at high camp for a few days and we ran out of food and we're like, all right, either we have to turn back now or if the weather clears up, we have one more shot at the summit. So that's kind of like the, the, the point where you're like, man, do we turn back or do we go? Like it's, it's like, it sucks to come all this way and turn back. I mean, uh, that's a decision you have to probably make a lot in, all the time, you know, with everything that you do. 
every all the time. And it, it's a really hard decision to make. And like sometimes, you know, you make the decision to turn back and you're like, man, should we have gone? I don't know. But at this in at this uh, moment, we decided to go for it. Um, and it was it was uh, about 3 a.m. We were maybe a thousand feet below the summit. And I had just switched leads with my partner, Jeremy. So I was leading on the rope and then we, we switched and he started breaking trail through the snow. And um, it's dark, 3 a.m. It's pretty cold. We're at about 19,000 feet. And I just hear like a really soft whoosh is all I heard is just like whoosh. And I look up and my headlights just shining, um, like showing the whole mountain, you know, the snow just like falling down like a waterfall. And I knew what was happening. I started counting you know, I knew that my buddy probably had two minutes to live and it's so crazy. I'll never even be able to describe this, but I just remember it felt like being stuck in a bad dream because at that elevation, you can take about, you know, one step for every three breaths because there's no oxygen. So you try to run because I, I was like, man, I got to save him, but I'm out of breath and I can't move fast because it, it snows waist deep. You know, you can hardly breathe. It's cold. And it felt like slow motion. I was like, it was such a weird moment. So I, uh, I kind of pulled the rope until I finally, you know, until it got tight and uh, we didn't have any, any rescue gear because we were trying to be all lightweight and Alpine style. But I was able to find where the rope ended. I started digging, found him about six feet under the snow and um, he was all blue and purple, not breathing. And I don't really remember how long this took. It's kind of hard to keep track of the time and something like this. I was kind of freaking out, but I was just like screaming at him. I was punching his face as hard as I could, giving him mouth to mouth for probably five minutes before he started slowly breathing. And then after about five minutes of kind of still just slapping and beating the shit out of him, he kind of gassed and woke up, spit out a bunch of snow. And that was that. And we got the hell out of there. But uh, that was definitely one of the closest moments we've had in the mountains, definitely closest he's had. And it's gnarly because it's like, yeah, we don't want, we're not trying to put ourselves in harm's way, but there's so many variables that you can't control. And that just is all part of climbing. Why is it worth it? <laughs> um, <laughs> Which is, that's, that's the real question, that's right? That's the question. You know, why is it worth it? What does yeah. it bring to your life? What are other people missing? And my buddies, we talk about this all the time. We're like, man, if we die, it's obviously not worth it. But if we live, it's, it's worth it every single time. And kind of just like pushing yourself to that limit of what you're capable of physically and mentally is, is just kind of a very addicting experience for me. And I think like I am really drawn to challenges. Um, and I think a, a, a climb or a mountain is the the gnarliest challenge I can think of both physically and mentally, it's as much a mental game as it is a physical game. And it's, there's relational dynamics with your team that are probably the single most important thing of a climb, even more than, you know, the physical and mental element, which most people wouldn't realize. So there's all these dynamics and challenges and it's just one of the most pure experiences. I think you really find out who you are and what you're capable of and every type of filter you have that your buddies have is stripped away. And it's, it's just such a pure experience and kind of like a self-discovering experience. And I mean, I ask myself that all the time. It's like, why am I, why do I love this? And I don't really know. I think it's just a combination of a lot of things, maybe personality, maybe, you know, whatever. But I, do you find it difficult to relate to others that haven't done anything like this, that haven't traveled, haven't experienced, haven't explored? Do you, do you find like there's, it's just like, what are, what, do you have trouble relating with them? You know, just 
their their <laughs> lack of contrast because they have like their width of contrast in life if you haven't got out and explored and done anything um is very small like they don't know how bad things can be or how good they don't have a, a, a mm-hmm. they can't grasp grasp it at all do you have trouble relating to someone like that definitely and it's not like i'm judging anyone by no, any means no it's not like that it's right, just, right. it's more of like it's like a you can't help it kind of thing right it's like i actually don't understand if you really want to do something why you wouldn't just do it and i and uh, I, I mean, I get if like maybe it's not the right time in life, you have to save money or whatever. But as far as like people being held back by fear or anxiety or like, you know, not knowing if they are capable of it, like I don't understand that because that's always been like, man, if I want to do this, I'm just going to work hard until I'm able to do it. And that's kind of how mountaineering was to me. It's like, man, I want to climb mountains. I'm going to work hard until I can do that. And and like anything like that, it's like. I just want to do it. You know, I don't want to sit, sit and watch other people do it. I want to be the guy. And doing one thing it. that I think is important is that it takes sacrifice, right? I mean, it's not yeah. like all these experiences you have, you were just able to have them. And the contrast you have, it's just not, it didn't just happen. It right. took a lot of sacrifice in your life. And, you know, whether it's living out of your van or, you know, doing this motorcycle trip on the cheap, you know, with, with bikes that aren't, you know, $30,000 or whatever, you know, all this stuff, it's, it's sacrifice and you Mm -hmm. did whatever you could do to make it happen because you thought it was important to you. Mm -hmm. And so how do you get other people to do that? Even if it's just in a, in a small way. Wow. Sorry about that. (laughs) So how do you get people to do that? Even if it's just in a small way? Um, I think it's all about pushing your own personal boundaries and limits and getting out of your own comfort zone. I mean, when it comes to climbing, when it comes to riding, there's a million people way better than me that would look at what I do as like kind of a joke, you know, because they're just on another level. But, and, and in the same way, like I don't look at people that might not be on quote unquote, my level as like lame or born, you know what I mean? Like it's all about pushing your own personal boundaries. And, and I know everyone's kind of at a different, a different uh, level and at a different season of their life. I know I am. And I, you know, the people that I look up to are helping me kind of grow. And I want to be the same for people that, are trying to get out of their own comfort zones, whatever that means, whether that's, you know, in just like tiny, you know, in small things like getting outside for a weekend and going for like a little climb or a little hike, whatever it is. I mean, I know that's how it started for me is kind of like getting addicted to the out. I mean, I grew up in the outdoors, grew up hunting, whatnot, but kind of getting addicted to more of what I'm doing now. It started small and it started by going with other people that kind of helped me see what was possible and what was out there. And and uh, yeah, that's definitely what I would aspire to do is help people kind of push their own boundaries and limits. And I think it's important for people to also realize that it's not the end result. That's what's important. Mm-hmm. You know, I named the film that I did with my buddy Alex on one of our road trips was uh, Der Vegas das Ziel, <laughs> which means the route is the goal, which means the journey is the goal, right? Can you talk a little bit about mm-hmm. how, how that rings true for you? Absolutely. Yeah, and I think, I mean, getting to the bottom of Ushuaia that wasn't really anything special. It just felt like every other day at the end of the trip, you know, we got there. It wasn't like, that wasn't the moment, you know, that wasn't what we were working towards. Obviously it wasn't the end. I mean, yeah, we all wanted to go home at that point, <laughs> but it was the whole experience along the whole way. And I think like anything like a, whether it's a climb or whether it's in your career or whatever it is in life, I mean, the, the pinnacle and, and that, you know, that's, it's not the end or it's not the end result. It's the process and the journey. And um, there's this school of thought in climbing and mountaineering that says, you know, the sum of the process and the journey is success. It's not just standing on the summit. It's, it's, you know, kind of climbing with integrity and, 
and kind of appreciating the whole process and the whole journey along the way. And that's just kind of really true of my life, whether it's for climbing, whether it's for riding, whether it's for expeditions, whether it's for, you know, my job. I mean, I want to have that perspective and I don't want to kind of look to the future and be wishing I was there when there's so much happening right now that I kind of want to appreciate and want to experience. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, our life just basically becomes a collection of experiences, not a collection of accomplishments. And I so think that's, good. and I think that's something that's important for everybody to understand. Yeah. Dude, I thank you for coming on the podcast. It's been, it's been great. I love hearing your stories. I'll be following you on Instagram. Where can people follow you if they want to hear more about what you do? So social media, it's kind of where everyone's at these days, right? My name is just James Barkman. That's my Instagram handle. And then my website, if you want to see more of like portfolio stuff, jamesbarkman.com. Yeah, you're a really great photographer. And uh, from what Thank I you. see, uh, there's a lot of stuff that I really, really like. I was going to get into a little bit of the photography stuff, but we just don't have time. Save so it for another day. Save it for another day next time <laughs> you're here in Minneapolis. Thanks again for coming on, man. I appreciate it. All right, man. Thanks a lot. You bet. So many thanks to Mr. Barkman. He's going on a journey now. We're getting ready to go to Afghanistan to climb. Wow. Which is, you know. Not where you would pick. <laughs> no, no. I mean, there's climbers there that have gotten abducted and stuff. I, I mean, can it's imagine. super dangerous. But yeah, he definitely is an adventurer. You know, we were talking in the car a little bit. He he thinks about his future from time to time, some things that he wants to do and everything like that. You know, I wish more people would get into feeling like most people don't get the attitude of I've got to get out and go do something mm -hmm. until they're too old to be able to do it. Or I you, could see that. you ever seen that thing where it's like you have um, uh, all kinds of time and no money yep. and then you've got all kinds of money and no time, yep. you know, but I really wish people would just try to do things while they still can. For sure. That's why I'm trying to do this road trip while I still can, you know, well, I'm still young when I'm 70 years old, I'm not going to get in a car and drive for 120 hours. It's just not going to happen. <laughs> it's just, it can't, it, I would, I would be too tired. Plus that's what 40. Oh my God. Only 30 years from now. Okay. So 30 years from now, will I even be allowed to do that? So I want to try and do all this stuff that I can mm. now while I'm still young. I don't have a lot of money, but I'm still going to try and make it happen anyway. And hopefully stories like this inspire everybody to go and find their mountain, find their road, find whatever it is that moves them to want to explore and experience new things. Absolutely. All right. Before we go, why don't you tell us a little bit about Patreon? Yeah. Before we get to Patreon though, before we go, why don't you tell us about Petrobox? Yeah. So the holidays are right around the corner. And one thing that you might be thinking about for either yourself or one of the friends that you know who is a car enthusiast is Petrobox. So Petrobox is a monthly subscription service specifically for the automotive enthusiast. Each month, they carefully select items, including tools, detailing supplies, apparel, garage gear, stickers, and you name it. And they deliver it right there to your doorstep. There's actually two levels of subscription to choose from. The Petrobox Basic costs less than 20 bucks a month, while the Petrobox Premium gets you more gear for $39.95 a month. Check them out over at mypetrolbox.com. That's M-Y-P-E-T-R-O-L-B-O-X.com. And use the code OVERCREST at checkout to get $6 off your first month's order. As an added bonus, every month they actually give away a set of rotiform wheels to one lucky subscriber. And they make wheels for all kinds of cars, so you don't think you need like a 20-inch wheel. They make some really sweet, smaller wheels as well. Anyway, absolutely. So um, we'll be back next week. Kevin Caulfield is on the podcast. Uh, it's going to be very, very interesting. He's a 
kind of in a Ferrari aficionado, I would say. And, and we're, Chris and I are not big Ferrari guys. No, so I'm looking forward to hearing and being educated a little bit about vintage Ferraris, um, comparing them a little bit with Porsches and the markets and motorsports and everything else. It'll be a, it'll be a good interview. I'm looking forward to it. And other than that, we will see you guys next time. Take care. Oh, 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 oh,